Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Michael Schellenberger is an environmentalist, commentator and author and an advocate for pragmatic solutions to climate change. He's with me today to discuss the future of our planet. Are you a climate change denier? (laughs) It's a very interesting question. Depends on what you mean by denier. I definitely deny that climate change represents a significant catastrophic risk. I don't believe that anywhere in the mainstream science is any scenario for existential risk. Uh, not in the working group one of the IPCC, is there anything mentioning an apocalyptic scenario? And in fact, all the trends are going in the right direction. But when it comes to climate science, I agree with the IPCC's basic view of the core science, where I part company is with the policy prescriptions. But I do believe that the earth is getting warmer and that greenhouse gases in general and carbon dioxide in particular are what's driving that warming. What do you make of this phrase, climate change denier? Where does it come from and what is the, what's been the impact of that phrase? The phrase comes from uh, climate activists wanting to frame their opponents as Holocaust deniers. And so they chose that word deliberately in order to shut down debate. It's a sort of a debate-ending frame aimed at just gaining power over the entire discourse, which has been incredibly successful. It's why... Uh, When people think of climate change, they think of the end of the world rather than thinking of it as a manageable risk or one that we're doing a very good job of mitigating already because uh, carbon emissions have been going down in Britain, the United States, most of Europe, most of the world uh, for the last 30 to 50 years. In the United States, carbon emissions declined 22% between 2005 and 2020. 61% of that reduction was simply switching from coal to gas. Climate activists are against the two main fuels that are going to reduce carbon emissions and that are reducing carbon emissions, natural gas and uranium, which thus raises the question of, is their concern really climate change or are they after something else? Do you feel they're trying to censor you essentially with this this label? 
Yeah, that's right. A climate denier is a label that's used as it was original. It was the original cancel culture before we even had the term cancel culture. It was aimed at shutting down conversation, at scapegoating a set of people who were asking some hard questions. There's certainly some people with fringe views that I don't share around the causes of climate change, but they use the term to sweep in people that accepted the basic science of climate change but rejected the proposed solutions. You describe climateism, as it were, as a religion. Why? The structures of the story that climate activists tell are identical to the Judeo-Christian tradition. So there was an idea that before the use of fossil fuels, or if you want to go back further, before uh, the dawn of modern agriculture, that humans were living in harmony with the environment, that we ate from the fruit of knowledge, which was uh, knowledge of uh, farming or fossil fuels, depending on where you want to locate the fall, and that we then fell from the state of nature and are now living in a fallen world. The difference is that traditional religions, including uh, Judeo-Christian religions, offer some sense of gratitude for what we've been given, a sense of redemption, and also uh, the concept of forgiveness. And all three of those are missing from the climate change religion. What do you think are the values of this religion? The core values are hatred of humanity. I think that's at the bottom. But if you look at the structure of the climatism story, it's basically the story of a depressed person. Aaron Beck, uh, the founder of Cognitive Behavioral uh, Therapy, which is uh, the most effective treatment for dealing with depression, said that depressed people have three basic storylines. The first is that I'm a terrible person, the world is a terrible place, and the future is bleak. And those are the exact same three structures in the climate change story. We are sinning against nature, we're destroying the planet, we're terrible, uh, the future is dark, and the world has fallen. It's a, it's a terrible place. Um, the, the reality, of course, is totally different from this. We've made huge amounts of environmental progress, lifted uh, almost all of us out of poverty. We've still got you know, around one to two billion people living in extreme poverty. But the story of human success is incredible, and with that success has come a reduction of our impact on natural environments. So we see grasslands and forests coming back in Europe and the United States. As countries get richer, we can produce more food on less land. That leaves more room for uh, habitats for endangered species. And as I mentioned, we've been reducing carbon emissions, doing this also in protecting ourselves and our, and our communities from extreme weather events. So really, it's a story of environmental progress, uh, particularly over the last 50 years. And I think that that reality only intensifies the desire and the exaggerations by climate activists. To what extent do you see this religion as being a left-right phenomenon? Because if it's anti-industrialization, then there's kind of philosophies on both the left and the right that could be linked to that J.R.R. Tolkien was against industrialization in some ways. Uh, if you go back to the French Revolution and you had those philosophers there, again, they, they looked at the state of nature and what you mentioned us sort of having that kind of perfect harmony in nature. And that was very much an anti-kind of Western philosophy as well. But then obviously most climate activists are on the left. So how do you see, how do you see the sort of po political divides in their religion? Well, that's right. It's, a, it's paradoxical and somewhat confusing because the climate climatism is illiberal and in some ways it's conservative but it's absolutely located on the political left in uh, really around the world not just in western nations at this point i think it's important to go back to the uh the period before world war ii 
where the left was associated with building large hydroelectric dams, with modern agriculture, with industrialization, urbanization, forward progress. The reversal of the left's position on economic development occurred after World War II when we saw the rise of neo-Malthusianism. It's really the same as uh, the ideas of Thomas Malthus, who said that the more people there are, the more starvation there would be. He was dead wrong. The opposite, of course, occurred. As we got wealthier, people chose to have fewer kids. Of course, we always had contraceptives available to people, uh, even at even during Malthus's time. And so the reversal is quite extraordinary. And so you have the new left in Western societies start to embrace a kind of primitivism um, and or a conservatism of, of wanting to go back to some earlier period. And so I do think it's a, and then the illiberalism is what we've been talking about, the labeling of any political disagreement as tantamount to Holocaust denial and other tactics that we now associate with cancel culture, censorship, woke culture, a kind of totalitarianism, trying to control every aspect of our lives in the name of, uh, of, of basically what is an apocalyptic religion. Where does Greta Thunberg sit within this religion? Well, she's a late-stage entrant, and a sort of Joan of Arc figure uh, sees herself as speaking on something that nobody cares about. I mean, it's it, she's actually a product of the dominant secular religion, climatism, which is the dominant religion of Western elites right now. It's that it's everything we've been talking about. Those are the views of the European Union, of the Democratic Party in the United States, of every left and center-left party in the world. So she comes out basically just telling elites what they've already been saying, but accusing them of not being radical enough. So you may recall during her signature moment at the United Nations when she said, how dare you? She wasn't addressing climate deniers. She was addressing people that claimed to be concerned about climate change. So with Greta Thunberg, you see a sort of infantile extremism that sought to intensify uh, demands for these extreme measures. I think she's an end-stage product and that we're coming, that the climatism is coming to an end as renewables come into crisis everywhere in the world because of both local community opposition to the land use impacts as well as the high cost, the high associated cost of transmission lines, backup storage. And those things are taking the, the bloom off the rose. And so we now see that renewables are actually awful for the environment. You know, it takes three to 600 times more land to produce the same amount of electricity from renewables, solar and wind, as it does from a natural gas or nuclear plant. And, uh, and, and so you're seeing a real world environmental impacts of renewables that then undermines, it's a contradiction within the climatist discourse, and you start to see an undermining of that political movement. The thing I don't understand about Greta is why did so many world leaders listen to someone who is so young, almost a child? Um, what explains that? Well, we've seen it's it's a form of narcissism, and so we've seen rising narcissism in the West. Um, I mean, arguably over over centuries, but certainly over the last fifty years, we've uh, so, so psychologists have documented that there's uh, more narcissism, and it was. Uh, intensified by social media. So Greta Thunberg was um, a way for elites to uh, actually feel good about themselves and to, uh, to, you know, she became, she was a sort of a mirror that elites held up to, to, to be told that their own extremist views uh, were reflected back at them and that they were right. So there's 
there's efforts for people that, you know, and this is true on the left and the right, to seek reinforcement of their existing views. And so with Greta Thunberg, they got that reinforcement, plus they were then able to wield her as a weapon against their opponents. Um, and it was a powerful weapon because people are reluctant to criticize a child. And so you're able to have all the venom uh, coming that's, that's inherent to the climatist discourse inside of a child um, that then anybody that attempted to respond was accused of, of uh, you know, mistreating or being mean to a child. And indeed, that's what occurred. You describe this as a religion, but the irony is, is that they talk about science, and that's all they talk about is sort of rationalism and how 99% of scientists agree with us and therefore you must comply. How, how do you sort of reconcile those two things? Well, the use of climate science by climatist activists, the apocalyptic activists, is a kind of disinformation campaign. They are spreading disinformation, first and foremost on the notion that climate change is an apocalyptic threat rather than a gradual, incremental uh, impact that we need to mitigate and adapt to. And so they are, they've corrupt, the corruption of the science is occurring really at every moment in it. I mean, there's now starting to see some of the corruption in the natural science, but mostly it occurs in the summary for policymakers and in the press releases and then in the statements made about the press releases. And then you, by the time it gets into media culture, it's been uh, reduced, you know, they just turned into something absolutely bonkers, really the opposite of what the data show. So in some sense, it's just um, a disinformation, a very clever disinformation campaign uh, by apocalyptic activists who, if it weren't climate change, they would have something else. Uh, certainly did overpopulation. But that word disinformation war. is quite um, it's quite a strong word because it implies their intention is to purposely mislead people or disinform them. Why do you say that that's their intention, or do you say that that is their intention? I do because there's. For I'll give you one example. That's a recent example. There's different classes of scenarios that the IPCC produces in order to get some forecast of what the future could look like. And so you have multiple futures, so to speak, being imagined in these scenarios. The the most apocalyptic scientists who have a significant amount of control and influence with the IPCC continue to demand to use a set of scenarios that are known as RCP 8.5, even though everybody knows perfectly well that there's no possibility of RCP 8.5 uh, being used, I testify in front of the U.S. Senate on this on this issue. The, that class of scenarios is a scenario of a high emissions scenario, a coal-based world. Well, we've been transitioning away from coal to abundant natural gas for decades in Europe and the United States. They continue to use that scenario, and then they combine it with other scenarios that suggest that it will be a low economic growth future. Well, the two things can't occur simultaneously. You can't have a high emission scenario and a low economic growth scenario. So I believe, and I criticized, I won't name it by name, but I did in my Senate testimony, one of the uh, economists who is combining this high emissions, low economic growth scenario, and they know exactly what they're doing because they know they've read the scenarios and they know what they say. But what is their motivation behind that. It's the usual human motivations. It's a uh, desire for attention or what psychologists call narcissistic supply. They know perfectly well if they describe the most likely scenarios, which is a moderate growth future along with a higher natural gas uh, rather than coal future, that they can't then tell the most extreme stories. 
there's not really an apocalyptic, apocalyptic story even under RCP 8.5 scenarios because humans are so good at adapting to climate change. I mean, we reduced our deaths from natural disasters by over 90%, even as the population quadrupled over the last century. But they, they, they know that if they move away from these really extreme, uh, impossible scenarios to the more moderate scenarios, then they can't even point to really many significant environmental impacts at all. And so uh, it's sensationalism, you know, uh, the money that goes into the scientific enterprise and into the renewables industry. And I think there's just a broader sense of power, of political power and societal power. Uh, whoever owns the risk and describes the risk um, is in the position of being able to demand the solutions to it. And, and that's what we've seen on climate. But if this is a religion, then one would expect all the incentives to say that you must produce research etc that is more apocalyptic in its predictions right. and disincentives to the opposite so right. you're you're becoming a kind of heretic if you say actually it isn't quite as bad as we thought it was well and that's right in in my book apocalypse never i describe how important it was for climate extremists to demonize people like roger pilkey jr at the university of colorado somebody who had done pioneering work showing that the cost of natural disasters, once you accounted for more wealth in harm's way, had not increased. Um, and there was no climate signal in those natural disasters. In fact, we now see over the last 30 years that the cost of weather and climate-related disasters has been declining because our infrastructure is so robust that any relatively modest increase in extreme weather events is much more is offset by better infrastructure they absolutely had to demonize him, and they went to great lengths. Um, we documented how the White House itself participated under Barack Obama in demonizing Roger Pilkey as a climate denier uh, and, and alleging that he was funded by fossil fuel interests, which was untrue. And so it's there's sort of a ritualized scapegoating that one can understand in a sort of anthropological way. But he also just posed a direct threat to some very powerful financial interests. When you're trying to persuade people who are um, who have a sort of opposite opinion to you on the on these issues, and and you view it in terms of a religion, do you see it as a sort of how how do you try how do you go about that? How do you try and persuade people um, from disbelieving in this religion? Well, I think it's first important to point out that certainly when you present these facts to people who believe something very different, their first reaction is to reject the facts. But that's just in the immediate term. I think over time it does help people to point out the ways in which they've been trapped in a kind of cult-like uh, belief system. And so I've been pointing this out um, since at least 2020, and we've already seen a lot of people start to temper their discourse the last three years. There's been a trend recently of many climate scientists themselves wanting to emphasize that climate change is not the end of the world. They always emphasize that really it's not the end of the world if we do the things I want to do. But nonetheless, I think there has been some recognition that they've lost credibility with the public by continuing to cry wolf about extreme weather events and about climate change. You know, we just came out of, you know, we're in hurricane season right now in the United States. We haven't seen very much happen. Um, the, the other, there's many examples. I mean, they predicted that climate change was, was killing the Great Barrier Reef's corals we now know that over the last two years, there's been record corals numbers. 
So I think the public, the problem for the climate activists is that the public can see that the reality is not reflective of the predictions that they made. Because we've been fed these predictions for many decades that the world is essentially doomed. And as you say, there's going to be this apocalypse. I think at one point they said it was 12 years away, or if we don't do anything then in 12 years' time, then it's all over, basically. What do you think the impact of these Duma-esque predictions has been on the general population and particularly on young people? It's been catastrophic. I think, you know, we've seen, I think this is one of the most interesting phenomena right now. And I'm working on an essay called Why Progressives Affirm Psychiatric Disorders. So we've seen on kind of race, climate and trans issues, progressives affirming, creating and or 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 increasing diagnosable psychiatric disorders including gender dysphoria um, addiction uh, and uh, climate anxiety and so it's certainly not to say that there's not other forces at work I think everybody or most people agree including myself that social media has contributed significantly to anxiety among kids the decline of physical exercise uh, physical education programs in schools has contributed you know young people we all need to you know, actually exercise a significant amount more than we actually do every day, spending way too much time on our phones. A lot of status anxiety is driven by social media. We feel like we're in a fishbowl. We feel like when we're being uh, criticized or ignored that we're not getting those dopamine <laughs> internal rewards that, that people want. But I think the climate change discourse has been absolutely toxic. It's told people that they have no future, that there's no point in having kids, the exact same thing happened in the 1960s with the population scare. And we now are actually concerned about not having enough population in Western countries. We're worried about population decline, you know, in places like Japan, Korea, Western Europe, and the United States. Uh, we're making some of it up with immigration. Nonetheless, um, I think the anxiety that we've been telling children, you know, that their futures are ruined, it's it's absolutely horrendous. It's irresponsible. And we need to remind we need we actually need to tell kids the opposite that really there's every reason to think that their future will be better uh, than the than the than the present. I mean, I'm always just struck by how good we are at saving endangered species. As long as we're reducing our footprint when it comes to agriculture and energy, that's what will happen. If we expand our footprint with renewables, then we're going to have a much more devastating impact on natural environments. But there's everything, every reason to believe that the future will be better than the past, and we should be telling kids that. It's very anti-human ideology, isn't it? Because you're basically saying if you have children, this is going to cause... Not only is, are those children going to cause be carbon emitters and cause terrible problems to the world, but the world that they'll be born into will also be catastrophic and a disaster. So this kind of anti-human ideology, again, has that led to... You think it's led to sort of anxiety and maybe even some extremism among groups like Just Stop Oil and Greenpeace and other radical climate groups? Absolutely, I do. And it comes from a bad place, which is, I think it comes from a sort of depressed person's view of the world who seeks to feel slightly better about themselves by uh, being the center of attention, by offering these doomsday stories. It's also a kind of narcissism because you're looking for narcissistic supply. You're looking for people to applaud when you make these outrageous claims. We saw this in the 60s with the population scare. We saw it also with the nuclear scare in the 70s. Then we see it in the climate change scare. And so it's a, real, it's a, it's a really selfish discourse. It's a way of people uh, 
trying to get societal uh, power for themselves by frightening other people, including children. And yeah, I mean, I think in some ways it's the worst of the problems because most developing countries, if they're capable of getting the energy they need, they will. But I think younger people are much more vulnerable to these discourses and we start to see rising levels of anxiety and depression, particularly among more liberal children who are more likely to believe at face values these apocalyptic claims. And there's also this odd dynamic, which one could even point to being a Marxist dynamic, where parents are now beholden to their children. And you've got Greta Thunberg, as I said earlier, telling world leaders what to do about you know very, very big and important decisions in their economies, etc., but also um, children, I feel like there's, there's an atmosphere where children today feel that they have the right to tell their parents that they are ignorant and, and to blame their parents and their grandparents for emitting carbon and for destroying their future. Do you think that is also a, a, a dynamic that has become more popular, particularly in the United States and Western countries? Yeah, absolutely it has. And it's actually an anti-civilization um, discourse as well. I mean, we have to remember that all of this prosperity came from us telling stories about our future that were positive while expressing gratitude towards our ancestors. You know, this is uh, true in the Western world. It's also true in Asia where you see uh, sort of ancestor worship, which is a way of expressing gratitude for everything that's come before us and also extending that responsibility into the future with our kids. But I was very struck when we saw the protest by Just Stop Oil, which was the evolution of Extinction Rebellion last uh, last year. And they were doing um, a set of things I found very interesting. They were throwing uh, soup onto paintings, including the famous Van Gogh sunflowers. They poured milk onto the floors at a grocery store, and they glued their hands to a floor at, a, at an auto uh, uh, display, at an automobile display. And I remember thinking to myself, well, this is incredible because these are the behaviors of toddlers throwing temper tantrums. So it's really the infantilism of an apocalyptic worldview that then is is conjoined, as you mentioned, with um, Greta Thunberg uh, being sort of the leading climate change advocate. So the process of infantilization in some ways goes back uh, also many decades. Uh, along with rising secularism, rising narcissism, you see rising infantilism where people take longer to become adults in societies. That Partly just as a result, of prosperity has meant that we haven't needed to become, you know, the kids don't need to help their parents on the farms anymore. You've seen the decline of chores. Um, the, the decline of chores, the decline of free play, these factors are viewed by psychologists as the drivers of the rising anxiety and narcissism in young people. So they're really getting it from all directions. And so you can see people starting to act out uh, and starting to, to trying to get particular psychological needs met in adulthood through climate advocacy. Do you worry about eco-terrorism? There has been some episodes of violence uh, by environmentalists. It's often, I don't think it's the main event. I worry much more about the, the, the ways in which these things undermine civilization, undermining cheap energy. You know, civilization is not super complicated. Like you need three basic things, cheap energy, law and order, meritocracy. If you'd like to have a liberal democracy, then you would want also equal justice under the law you'd want free speech you want free markets we see all six of those foundations of liberal democratic western civilization under attack by the radical or woke left 
with a view of replacing all those things with some different moral order, one based on a, a on a hierarchy of racial of racial hierarchy, on an idea that one's sex is determined uh, by the individual, and also based on this idea that the world is coming to an end from climate change and that we need to radically reduce our energy and food consumption, and and actually. And supposedly harmonized with the natural environment, even though that involves expanding our environmental footprint. So I do worry more about the anti-civilization impacts than I do about the tactical behaviors. Though certainly we saw in Britain with the Just Stop Oil last year, uh, at least one motorist uh, killed as part of those Just Stop Oil protests. Well, the reason I ask is because if you do have people who genuinely believe the world is doomed and everyone on planet Earth could die or at least a significant population there could be a significant population wipeout and you want to stop that from happening then anything's justified isn't it so hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. That's why I'm, I suppose that's why I'm asking. And particularly in Britain, this has happened particularly in Britain, where, as you say, we've seen Just Stop Oil and other protest groups um, becoming more radical in their actions. Do you think that there is a particular British phenomenon in this? Why hasn't it happened in America, for example? Well, we have. It's a very, it's a very good question. I mean, um, it is interesting to see how extreme the British activists have have become. We certainly have our share from the United States. I think it's more diluted across a bigger country. Things are so concentrated in Europe. It's just a smaller area. Um, things are so concentrated in Britain, in particular. So I do think. Um, you know, it is a peculiar quality of this country. You know, it's a you know Britain is very secular now, um, but it was very religious, and I think that there's a I, I see in my <clears throat> kinder moments, I'll, I'll see the the climate activists as real spiritual seekers. The final chapter in my book, Apocalypse Never, is called "False Gods for Lost Souls," and I do think that these are lost souls who are really they need some sort of purpose, and in failing to find that purpose through conventional means, you know, namely work and love, but also some sort of uh, you know more benign spiritual practice, we start to see them engaging in a kind of political extremism. So I do think there is reason to worry about the radicalization. Um, that being said, I also think that sometimes these movements uh, can die out as the media discourse shifts, because in many ways these are just creations of the media that have uh, used this issue to create alarmism and to generate fear because fear sells newspapers. And so I think to the extent to which the news media start to move on to other issues, the crisis in the Middle East, uh, economic problems, and as the renewables agenda comes into crisis, and the climate science comes back uh, much less apocalyptic every year, um, I do hope that we will see uh, climatism, if not come to an end, then at least uh, diminish in its societal power. Do you have any advice to parents who are concerned about their 
children's radicalism in this area or even just their children's beliefs in this sort of doomeresque um climate agenda and you know what what would you say to parents to try and sort of deprogram their kids because they might be surrounded by all sorts of tiktok videos and their friends telling them things and even their teachers and as a parent you've got a bit of power of your child but it's quite difficult to control all of those other things that might be influencing their ideas on this yeah, that's right. I think that um, young people, particularly adolescents, are much more influenced by their peers than they are by their parents. You know, that being said, I think that uh, kids do take what their parents tell them very seriously, even if they pretend that they're not doing that, speaking from personal experience here. Um, and I think asking questions is often a good way to go, and also even asking your children for some evidence to back up some of the claims that they're making. Uh, I think rather than getting into a kind of heated argument or... A, uh, a debate about it, um, asking their kids for references. If they're saying things like climate change is ending the world, it's where did you get that from? And can you show me the scientific papers? And is that in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change? Um, I wrote Apocalypse Never in part because I wanted it to be for uh, friends and family of people that had embraced this climate fanaticism. So you could kind of go through it, it summarizes all the evidence. I point to specific uh, art, you know, specific you know, peer-reviewed scientific papers to parts of the IPCC, and start to pull this stuff apart. You know, around all of it—hurricanes, fires. My, uh, I gave a talk yesterday, and certainly at environmentalprogress.org, which is the website and the organization that we founded, we have these slides set up, and I we try to get the primary data or the top scientific data, and you see that really it doesn't support any of the extreme statements that people make. Let's talk about the real-world impact of some of these climate policies or policies that politicians have tried to put in place to tackle climate change, decarbonisation, etc. In the UK, they're obsessed with this phrase, net zero, net zero by 2050. They're talking about uh, carbon emissions. In California, I know that there's also been some really extreme policies. That's where, where you live. Maybe you can discuss a bit about what's happened in California and maybe that acts as a warning to other places around the world. Well, sure. I mean, so in California, we've seen uh, rolling blackouts uh, almost every year over the last six years. This is coming at a time when you're having uh, demands for more electric cars, which would require a much larger uh, number of power plants than we have. Uh, we've seen our electricity prices rise seven times more than they did in the rest of the country over the last decade because of these mandates for renewables, um, solar in particular. You know, one interesting statistic is that in, 20, in 2021, we received uh, less electricity from zero carbon sources than we did in 2011, despite having had a huge build out of solar. And the reason is simply that we had we were in a drought year, and so we had less water for hydroelectric dams, and we had shut down a nuclear power plant. So it shows the, the really the limits of renewables. You know, Germany has basically flatlined in terms of its renewable energies of the last three years, even though they've been installing more wind and solar projects. And the reason is because uh, it wasn't very windy and it wasn't very sunny. And so the vagaries of weather uh, show you just how unreliable renewables are, not just day to day, but also year, year over year and the incredible costs that they impose on the society. And so that's why you start to see politicians like the Prime Minister of Britain, um, but also the governor of California and heads of state around the world starting to pull back from those extreme commitments. The wind industry is now demanding a bailout in the United States because they, the, the, the prices are such that, that those projects no longer make any sense. I think you're going to see very significant opposition from Republicans in the Congress to 
even more money for the wind industry, whose the cost of their projects has been subsidized by at least one third for over for about thirty years now. And I think at a certain point, you have to say, you know, this technology can't stand on its own, and we need to phase out its funding. You talk about the demand from for electricity from, for example, electric cars, and this must be a significant concern for policymakers because there isn't the capacity and there isn't enough energy to uh, supply for the if we do all convert to electric cars because they're trying to ban uh, petrol cars in the UK I think 2030 maybe even I think they extended it 2035 or something around that date and again in this in the European Union it's a similar sort of date so again how do you think what's going to happen when they do ban these petrol cars and we all have to shift to electric cars in terms of I mean do you, do you see a sort of cliff edge a sort of crisis that's that's coming well, we're in it right now. I mean, we're having there. There's actually a glut of electric vehicles because they're they're not able to sell them at the higher, both because of the higher costs, but also because of the anxiety that consumers feel about needing to recharge and having to spend a lot of time recharging at a time when you just need to stay on the road. So I do think that that's starting to happen now. We're also, um, you know, the amount of critical minerals that are required to create electric cars is huge, and so you've got these pretty awful supply chains going back to uh, Central Africa. We've seen some of the horror stories around the, the mining of uh, various uh, uh, minerals for electric cars. They, they're all basically, pro- mostly all processed in China. And so it, it's hard for me to believe that the United States and Europe are going to want to shift their energy dependence from themselves or the North Sea or, uh, you know, the fracking in the, in the, the United States uh, to China, uh, particularly given the the chaos and the global situation. So I do think that, um, you know, we actually have seen petroleum consumption rise uh, after the COVID period. And I don't see that that peaking, you know, anytime soon. And certainly not because of electric cars. And there's just some power density problems as well when you get from the smaller passenger vehicles into the trucks. And so I do think that since that crisis has already begun. Have there been some developed countries who have handled these climate policies better than others? Have there been some examples where we can look to for sort of hope for the future of where countries are adapting to climate change, but they're not taking these kind of radical climate policies to completely destroy, for example, their nuclear power stations? I mean, the two places, I mean, the, one of the, the places that you would normally, we'd normally look to were France and Sweden because they had such a big nuclear build-out. France had itself been ambivalent about all of its nuclear. It reduced nuclear from over from around 80% of its electrical grid to just under 70%. It's then uh, it did not properly maintain its plants, and so it had to take several of the plants, uh, multiple reactors offline over the last year, year and a half, in order to make those repairs. Um, that should have been avoidable, you know. Had you actually had they not shut down the nuclear plants, that they did shut down, which could have kept operating while the the other plants were being repaired. Similarly, in Sweden, the country has gone back and forth on this issue because anti nuclearism is so strong. But we are starting to see a return to nuclear around the world. You know, it's been ten years since Fukushima accident in Japan. The Japanese government has returned to nuclear. The Korean government. Uh, voted out uh, an anti-nuclear party, voted in a pro-nuclear party. We see in Canada much stronger support for nuclear power. Um, Even on the center-left, we're seeing a return to nuclear because it's so important for climate change. And so that was one of the core contradictions of the climate discourse was the the view that, that 
that climate change is an urgent threat, but that we couldn't possibly use nuclear power. I think that's starting to change. We've seen it among Democrats in the United States, where a minority of Democrats supported nuclear about 10 years ago, and today a majority support it. You talk about public attitudes towards uh, climate policies. In the UK, if you look at opinion polls, most people support net zero. Do you think that those attitudes will shift as these policies come into place and suddenly things are becoming much more expensive um, and it will impact people's lives? Or do you think that those opinion polls will sort of maintain their level of popularity? Well, I think they, have, they have shifted already. Otherwise, the Prime Minister of Britain wouldn't have scaled back the net zero commitments. I also think that people support things in the abstract. They support ambitious goals in the abstract, and that's understandable. Um, but they're not totally sure what it means. I mean, net zero is just a sort of branding exercise. It's not a specific policy agenda. I might be in favor of net zero if it were focused on nuclear power, um, although even there you're always going to have some emissions, and so it is a rather uh, extremist position. And, the, you know, the Earth does absorb 45% of all carbon emissions that we emit, so it's not like you need to stop, you need to reduce all emissions to zero, even from an ecological perspective. You can produce some amount of carbon dioxide. So, I, yeah, I think that it is running into crisis I think sometimes people, when they get asked that question, they're simply being asked whether they care about climate change, and they're saying yes. I don't think they're necessarily signing up for the destruction of the uh, the energy economy and Western civilization. You mentioned that Rishi Sunak, the British Prime Minister, sort of reversed on some of the net zero policies, and even that there are some centre-left politicians who are doing the same thing. Now, I'm, I'm not sort of well, that well-read on Democrats in, in the States and their sort of views on climate change, but do you have you seen a shift um, within the Democratic Party in terms of views on, on energy and, and climate? Well, we just gave a huge amount of money. I mean, it's uh, I was ostensibly uh, around $400 billion. It's going to probably be more like a trillion dollars to various green energy technologies. It was so much so as to alarm the European Union um, around these heavy subsidies for green energy. But what they've done is they've actually reduced the requirement or that that electric cars and be produced in the United States. I think that'll end up having with solar panels as well. If you were to try to produce solar panels and electric cars in the United States, the prices would would increase significantly, and everybody knows that, um, as opposed to making them in China. So I do think we've seen some of that, that occur, um, but we haven't been pinched in the same ways that you have in Britain and Europe just because we have so much abundant oil and natural gas. You know, we had very expensive uh, oil prices in last year, and we're just so rich in oil and gas in particular in the United States that we were able to increase production and bring those prices down rather quickly. But that was through Joe Biden uh, reducing the reserve of oil in the United States, right? Well, that's true. I mean, that is another issue. Um, But there has been also an increase of oil and gas production, too, um, could be much more than that. And you're right, they've been draining the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, I think, to dangerously low levels. Uh, but nonetheless, yeah, we're just so much more in... We're, we're very spoiled in the United States with abundant natural resources that you just don't have here in Europe. There's a great Bismarck quote about um, U.S. geography, where you're sort of you're surrounded by the north and south by two friendly neighbors, and the east and west by two oceans. So, yeah, And you've yes. got abundant natural resources, so America is very lucky in that sense. Um 
I want to end the interview by talking about a couple other subjects other than climate change. I want to briefly talk about San Francisco. Um, I was there earlier this year and uh, made a film about uh, actually reparations and how the city uh, council and city government want to or proposing to give $5 million to every black resident um, as reparations for slavery. And whilst we were filming, we were actually uh, going to some of the areas in San Francisco with uh, more homelessness, which is basically everywhere. And uh, we were attacked. And um, I don't know if you saw this video, but we, we had our car smashed in by some homeless people and it made for good footage, but it definitely made my heart uh, pump a little bit faster. Um, can you tell us a bit about San Francisco? What's going on there now? I know you've, be, you've written a lot about this uh, topic. Um, has there been any recent developments? How is the city changing? Sure. So my book, San Francisco, came out in the fall of 2021. It had a huge uh, reception in the United States. It was uh, widely debated, particularly on social media, uh, but it even sort of crept into the mainstream liberal news media. The mayor responded in the fall, saying she was going to crack down on the open air drugs, on the open air drug dealing, drug drug use, which is really what's behind the so-called homeless crisis. Um, but then a couple months later, she followed up by creating a supervised drug consumption site in the downtown plaza which I and others exposed and basically got shut down within a year. The governor you know, of California it wants to run for president. In some ways, it appears he is running for president. There's some talk that someone will try to finally convince Joe Biden to step down and allow Gavin Newsom to run. He knows that San Francisco is an albatross on his campaign and on his reputation. Because he was the mayor of San Francisco. Yeah, that's right. And and the governor is extraordinarily powerful in California in contrast to the mayors who are very weak just for structural reasons. But even when things fail at the local level, it does go to the governor to take responsibility. And he has so far failed to do that. He has embraced some of the things that I've been advocating for in San Francisco, including the restoration of courts to particularly to uh, to divert mentally ill and drug addicted people into rehabilitation programs rather than into prison. He's called for the National Guard and the Highway Patrol to help to crack down open air drug dealing. But we have very liberal judges that then opposed efforts to require people to leave the streets and go inside for shelter. That issue may be going to the Supreme Court. But what we've seen mostly is a failure of leadership, both at the local level and at the gubernatorial level, at the federal level. That failure is due in large part to ideology, victimhood ideology, which suggests that everybody who's on the street is a victim and to them everything should be given and nothing required, which is the opposite of what you need if you need to, if you need to climb your way out of addiction and mental health care. You need some incentive to change your behaviors, whether it's taking your meds or, or no longer using drugs. Um, so I think there's some sense, uh, we, we were talking a lot about the need for carrots and sticks to combining the work of police officers and social workers, but we're also in a huge policing crisis. You know, even uh, before Black Lives Matter in 2020, we had 20 to 30% fewer police officers per capita than you do here in Europe. And now, and then now we've been in an incredible policing crisis. So San Francisco is short over 500 police officers. We don't have the new cadets in the academy, which is where they get trained. Is that because people don't want to go into the profession? A absolutely. That's the main driver. I mean, we, they keep increasing the salaries, but, you know, man does not live by bread alone. We also like to have some sense of, you know, pride in our work and some sense of social satisfaction. And so it wasn't just the defunding of the police, it was the demoralization and the demonization of police. 
I think we owe police officers an apology. I think it has to come from the highest levels. They were blamed for things that they did not do. And from the 1970s until today, police violence against suspects and criminals declined dramatically with better police uh, training and, uh, and, and by having better methods. So the police have actually done their jobs very well. They've, they became more restrained uh, and then they just became scapegoated for uh, broader concerns in the society and because of this, this woke fanaticism. So I think we owe them an apology. I think we need to paint a, a better picture of how police officers are valued by the society and how we appreciate them because they want to be able to walk around town and feel appreciated and not feel demonized. And so I think some of that change just has to happen at the cultural level. But isn't this ultimately on the people of San Francisco who keep electing these politicians who don't, who refuse to change their policies towards this terrible crisis? A- absolutely. That's the level at which, uh, to use the language of the 60s left, that's the level at which the consciousness needs to be raised. You know, people are very easily manipulated by words. And I'm so struck by how powerful these words have been you know, at the same time, we do see in the polling, there is much higher support for the policies that people like me are advocating. You know, 75% of the residents of San Francisco would like to see, you know, public drug use, public drug dealing, public defecation, public camping, illegal camping. They would like to see those people arrested when they break the law. And then given the choice between jail and rehabilitation, they don't want to see it continue. But you're right, they are allowing themselves to be trapped I also think Republicans have not adapted to this new issue in the ways that they should have. They've all, Republicans have always been rather suspicious of psychology and therapy and rehabilitation. Uh, they've wanted to use a much more blunt instrument uh, and been less supportive of things like universal psychiatric care, universal addiction treatment as alternatives to incarceration. Thank you very much, Michael Schellenberger, for joining us. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app.